It's good to be with you guys this morning. I was reminded as we were singing that song of Psalm 23.5, the Lord prepares a banquet for me in the presence of my enemies. So no matter how we come into the room today, my Jesus is with us. The Lord is with us. My name's Tony, if we haven't met, uh, my name's Tony, and uh, I have the privilege of being on pastoral staff here at Wellspring. If you came in and you've been, I don't know, with us for the last, I don't know, year-ish, just so you know, we had a global pandemic, and we stopped serving coffee. The coffee is back. There are some miracles that happen. The coffee resurrection is today. We'll be celebrating it. We're also after church. One of the things we did four years ago when we started this uh, church replant is every day after service, right, we would, we would sing songs of worship. We would dive into the scriptures. And then after, we would say a blessing, and we would go to this table over here, and we'd have food on it, and we would just break bread together. And we're going to start doing that again, right? It's just as a space, right? If you go to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, he's constantly eating with people. And we want to be a people at Wellspring that practice the way of Jesus. And I think one of the ways we build relationship is by eating together. So we're going to start doing that. Uh, just a shout out, if you like baking or contributing or just bringing stuff, amen, there's a big table. Uh, we would love your contributions. All right, if you are a kid and you want to hang out with other kids, there are a number of adults over there, and they will follow your lead. It's going to be awesome. So this morning, um, so we just finished last week. We were in Exodus 40. We are going to hop into the book of Numbers, specifically Numbers 13 and 14. Oh, we still got a couple coming. You guys got it. And as I was thinking about this text, I was actually reminded of a little over four years ago uh, when our family, it was the middle of uh, December, I think it was December 17th, uh, and we were, I heard for the first time, about this replant, church plant opportunity. My wife and I were up in Washington. Our family's up there. We were part of a church we really enjoyed, a community we really loved. It was great. We were super happy to be there. And then we heard about this church plant opportunity, and we're like, I don't know about this, you know? And so we had all of our friends gather around us, and we did these three different prayer spaces, these prayer gatherings, so that they could listen for us. And each one, a different person would bring up this verse from Isaiah. Isaiah 43, 19. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And you read it maybe on a coffee cup or in some t-shirt or in your Bible on in ran, some random devotional. And you think, that's beautiful. But when you are in a place that you like already... And God says, no, 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 we're going to do a new thing. You think, oh, no, that's a lot of change, right? And we're going to have to move our whole family 
Well, what if God doesn't show up? What if this is just a random coincidence on three separate nights and not the word of God spoken to us in that moment? Right? It feels vulnerable. You're on this threshold. Do you trust the word of God to you enough to follow? Now, I bring this up because in two weeks, we're going to have our anniversary service, which is four years in. But I also bring it up because Numbers 13 and 14, the text we're going to look at, is this key transition moment in the life of Israel. And there's this real question that is live and central. Will the people of Israel believe the word, the promise of God to them? Right, God has rescued his people from, his, from Exodus, gosh, from slavery in Egypt through the Exodus, right? He's rescued his people, and as he rescued them, he has said to them, and guess what, guys? I'm not only going to rescue you, I'm going to bring you to a land that we'll be able to share together. On the one hand, they get up there, they're on the border of the promised land, it's super exciting. Right? They've been slaves looking for a land of their own, probably dreaming right? as they're working, building for the Egyptians, dreaming for the day when they could have their own fig tree, their own grapevine, provide for themselves. On the other hand, it's a little scary. Do they trust that God has really given them this land? Or do they feel like they're going to have to squ- you know, claw to get every inch of it by their own effort and their own energy, and will they be up to the task? It's this sort of scary threshold moment. So in Numbers 13, right, the people of God, they're on the border of this promised land by God. They decide to send some sort of spy slash explorers out into this land to see what it's like. This is what it reads. Numbers 13, 17 to 20. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go into the Negev and go into the hill country and see what the land is, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, whether, whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether, the trees are, whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage. Bring some of the fruit of the land. Now, the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. All right. I think it might help a little bit to do a little bit of geographical orienting. Uh, This is a map. Um, I found this one. It's actually kind of cool because it's horizontal, so it actually fits on our projection. It just has a lot of Hebrew on it, so just ignore that. It's also cool because it's typographical. So you'll notice, see the X on the bottom? That's where they start. That's the border of the desert, the Negev, right? And then it says they go into the hill country from the Negev. See those little hills, that little dot going up? That's the beginning of the hill country, right? So now they're going to go north. So imagine this is like literally north-south. They go north up that dotted line all the way up to the top through the most fertile area uh, of the promised land of Israel. If you actually flip over those mountains, that's the Dead Sea on the right, kind of the upper right-hand corner. Nothing grows in there. Very um, salty. All right. Are we good? All right. Where am I? Okay, so they're starting in the south. They're going north. 
the spies are told to kind of observe what the land is like. In particular, pay attention to the strength of the inhabitants, right? Whether the cities are fortified, and this makes sense. They're trying to evaluate what are the obstacles we're going to face. They've heard these promises, but they kind of want to see for themselves, like, what are we in for? Has God left this totally empty? Right? None of them have been there. Or are there people there? And if there are people there, what are they like? What are their cities like? What's it going to be like if we lean past this threshold into this promised land? They also want to know whether the land is good or bad. They're wondering, you know, are we going to be able to survive here? Remember, they've been walking through a desert. The first two stories about Israel in the desert are about water and food. Right? They've been shaped in this space for the last few months on, will I have water today? Will I have food today? And now they want to know, when they get into this promised land, is this land any good? Will I be able to grow stuff? Right? The quality of the land really matters. I love this line about trees. They're like, oh, and by the way, see if there's trees there. And I think us as like modern peninsula dwellers in the 21st century are like, trees? We got trees everywhere. Like, doesn't everywhere on earth have trees? Well, when you're walking through a desert, trees are a really important thing. Trees do multiple things. One, they provide shade. Who here has been on a really hot day and like found shelter under a tree? Thank you. Yes, it's really nice. In the desert, in the Near East, ancient Near East, they also signal the presence of water. If you see trees, you know there is water somewhere about. So these trees, this question about trees is not an innocent sort of question of, but I really like the look of the green on the brown, like beautiful. You know, that's not the point. The point is, is there shade and is there water for life? They want to know about cities, fortification. They want to know about shade and water. And they also want to know, hey, you know, if you get a chance, could you bring back some fruit? Right? We've been walking in the desert. I would love to taste a pomegranate in my mouth. The text says in verse 20 that it's the season of the first ripe grapes, which would have been late July. So they've been walking in the desert for two months, right, after their departure from Mount Sinai. The text reads in Numbers 13, 21 through 25, So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rahab near Lebo Hamath. And they went into the Negev and came to Hebron, Ahiman, Sheshai, Talmai, and the descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. They came into the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Echol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. And at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. All right, there's a few details worth highlighting here that might not be immediately obvious upon a first reading. One, verse 21, it says, The spies went from the wilderness of Zin to Rahab. What that means is they went from literally the most southern portion to the most northern portion. Now, that's about 250 miles each way, 500 miles total. That's like if I said to you, hey, you know, would you mind spying out the land from here to Las Vegas? Right about now, 
Like, who wants to do that walk? 500 miles in 40 days, about 12 and a half miles a day, which is like doable if you're used to walking. But they're also spying out the land, right? They're checking things out. It's not like they're like, here's the path. I'm on the PCT, like I'm walking. No, there's, they're like going off one way and another. They're trying to explore the land. But they're not just walking. They're also spying. They're also fruit picking, right? They gather a selection of fruits. They have grapes, pomegranates, figs. And I love this idea of like they carry it on a pole. So you have two people walking, a pole here. The other, other po- person is holding the pole here and they're walking. And there's this like massive cluster of grapes in the middle. Has anyone ever grown grapes? Right, they grow in these huge clusters. It's like they just have this massive cluster between them. It's also worth noting, probably, uh, the text mentions Hebron. So it's one of the few cities it mentions in verse 22, which is, I think, pretty important, actually, for the whole story so far up into Numbers. Hebron, uh, verse 22, right? This is the land, just about the land, where God promised Abraham in Genesis 13 that he would inherit land, right? Hebron now is echoing back to the original story, the original patriarch of their people. Your original patriarch was promised land in this spot. It's also the place where Abraham buys a plot of land in order to bury his wife. It's also where many of the patriarchs are buried. Right, so this isn't just some land, random land. This is a land that is anchored in the story of Israel, in their ancestors, and in God's promise. Literally, their fathers are buried there. The text says after 40 days, right, the spy uh, explorers, they return. Now, I want you to imagine, enter in for a second, what it would be like to be a non-explorer in this moment. You've literally been rescued out of slavery. You've walked through the wilderness. Now you have these spies going out and you're waiting for 40 days. What's it going to be like? What are they going to say? What are they going to say about the fortifications or the land? Are there going to be lots of trees? Recently, or maybe not that recently, sometime in the last year or so, I, um, I let my kids walk the dog by themselves. Now, that might seem like this very small thing. My kids are in elementary school. You're like, no big deal. Well, this same dog has pulled everyone in our family other than me off of their feet and dragged them on the ground at one point or another. <laughs> so I was a little apprehensive thinking, well, I don't know what's going to happen when they take said dog on a walk. And apparently I wasn't the only one, because when I asked Rainier to go with my kids, he put his haunches in the ground and looked back at me as like, you're sending me with these wild people? <laughs> Eventually I convinced him, right? And, and they go for this short walk. It's maybe like five minutes, but literally, like I have this anxiety in me. I'm like looking in the window. I'm like, look, I, honestly, I did peek around the corner. Like I had this sense of like, Man, am I going to see a kid running back and another kid like being dragged on the ground because my dog saw a deer or a cat or something? And I remember they came up and I remember seeing them and I was like, I like went to the front door. I was like total dad moment of like, how was it? You know, and they're like, dude, (laughs) it was fine. 
But I think this just captures one small amount of the anticipation and the anxiety and the worried waiting that they would have had, waiting on the threshold of the promised land. What's going to happen when these explorers and spies come back? And after 40 days, the spies return, and the text says in verses 26 to 28, And they came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Param at Kadesh, right? So that's that southern portion. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Look. And they told them, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is the fruit. Boom, you know. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. So everyone gathers, right? This isn't just like, a few people are let in, literally, like, everyone's there. They're handing out fruit. Kids are, like, jumping up parents' legs, like, give me some fruit, you know? And they try one bite, and they're like, more, more, more. And parents are, like, trying to hold them back. Everyone is sort of trying to get in to hear the voice of the spies. The first words they utter are actually really, really important. The, the spies call Canaan, in verse 27, the land you sent, or the, the land to which you sent us. Now, on one level, this is natural enough. Moses and Aaron did send them. They're like, go to this land. And they said, yes, that is true. But it's very different when you actually pay attention to the language used and compare it to every other way the land has been described up to this point since Exodus 3. Since Exodus 3, every single time this land has been referred to, it has been referred to as the land that God promised or swore to his people. Never once has it just been land. It's always been the land that God promised. And yet, the spies don't use this sort of God-centric language. Focused on God's word, God's promise to them. I will give you land. I will not only rescue you from slavery, but I will bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey. It's simply the land to which you guys, Moses, Aaron, sent us. With that said, though, they start pretty positive. The land flows with milk and honey. Awesome. Look at the fruit. Isn't it tasty? I remember the first time I heard this description of the promised land as a land that flows with milk and honey. I thought, it's like the whole entirety of it is like Napa on steroids. It's like, you want grapes? I got grapes, you know? Like, just massive. And that's true of Galilee and the Jezreel Valley, right? So that part they went up, is actually pretty abundant. But 70% of the promised land is still desert. Let's be clear about that. So what they're really saying is, compared to where we just were, this land is, flows with milk and honey, and that does not mean there are chocolate rivers. You know, my son is very disappointed by this. Or honeycombs that are so productive, it's like flowing out. It's like, stop the honey stream, you know. Not like that. Land of milk and honey is simply an expression in the ancient Near East, which means bountiful and abundant. Hey guys, 
we can live here. But then, right, the spy explorers shift. They go from milk and honey to all of the obstacles. Right, the people's strength, the cities, they're fortified. Now, the Canaanites, this area, the land of Canaan, does not have like a national identity. They don't have a national military. What they have is fortified cities, often divided by ethnic groups. Now, on one level, that feels much easier to conquer than like, you know, an empire. But the Hebrew people are just recently freed slaves that have been nomadic for three to four months. It's not like they've built up an arsenary, or like an arsenal of chariots and other weapons. How does a recently freed, primarily nomadic people overtake a fortified city? And I think this is what the spies are starting to highlight. The land is great, but it's inhabited by people that are not only stronger than us, but their cities are fortified. And in this moment, the people hear the news of the spies and they start to forget the promise of God. Who said, I will bring you not only out of slavery, but to a land of your own. What's interesting is up to this point, every time the land has been described as flowing with milk and honey, it has been connected to God's promise. Right? This starts all the way back in Exodus 3. This is before he's rescued his people. Exodus 3, 3, 8. And I have come to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, point one, and I will bring them out of that land to a good land, good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Right? This has been the promise all along. Right? God knew who was going to be there. It wasn't like he's like, oh, man, I forgot that on my checklist. Oh, land without fortified cities. My bad. Oops. I guess we'll find a way in the desert. No, God knew what was going to happen. And yet, God's promise is forgotten by the Israelites as they see the obstacles ahead. Right? They look on the presence of the other nations as an insurmountable barrier rather than a confirmation of God's promise. I've brought you to this land. I won't abandon you here. But the people start to give up. Caleb, who's one of the spies, he stands up. He senses this. He stands up and he says, let us go at once and occupy it. For we are well able to overcome it. Right? He senses the momentum of the conversation. Right? It starts with the land you brought us to. It goes to milk and honey. And now it's all these obstacles. And Caleb's like, I see where this is going. Yeah, there's obstacles, but they're not insurmountable. Why? God promised us this land. But almost immediately, the others sort of like stomp on this optimism. Verse 31. Then the man who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And the text says at this point, verse 32, that the spies offer an evil report. This isn't just neutral. Right? They're not just reporting facts. 
there were this many archers on this city. This is how tall the walls were. They are actually undermining the faith of the gathered community. Verse 32 and 33. The land, though, which we have gone to spy it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw, they're of great height. There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. So we seem to them. Right? Caleb's attempt, trying to encourage them to faith and belief, to trust in God's promise in his word, is stomped out. Guys, you know that experience when you're walking through the desert and you see a grasshopper and you're just like, ah, stomp. That's what it's going to be like for us. We're just going to get stomped on and squished. We stand no chance. In reality, the story of their arrival at the promised land is about the goodness and graciousness of God's abundant provision. But it's been warped into a story of fear on a bedrock of lies by the spies and the explorers. See, the true failure of the spies, the explorers in this moment, is not that they saw the difficulties, right? They were sent to observe what was there, right? They know we're not come back to say everything is awesome. Yes, there's a song about that. When I was practicing this, every time I'd be like, everything is awesome. It's kind of hard not to like have a little dance, you know? You know, that was not their commission though. Faith in this moment is not unwavering or unseeing optimism. Pretending is not faith. The true failure of their mission is not the spy's honesty, but the spy's inability to see these difficulties in light of God's promise, his word to them. It's not that the difficulties are imaginary, right? There are fortified cities there. They are a nomadic people recently freed from slavery that probably are not capable by their own efforts to overcome these cities. But faith in this moment is to believe that Israel with God is able to overcome. Right? Faith in this moment is not pretending like everything is safe when it is not. It's seeking to view the circumstances in light of God's promise to them for this land. The thing is, the fruit of the evil report is that the people become overwhelmed with fear and they just start weeping. And then they start dividing among themselves. Numbers 14, 1 through 2. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Right? They weep. They're crushed by despair. They've come all this way. They're on the threshold. They've bought into this evil report of the spies and they're thinking, what are we going to do now? We've been abandoned. Notice though, they don't even cry out to God. 
Like at least acknowledging God in their anger, frustration, disappointment is a sense of saying, God, you're a part of this story. Instead, they weep and then they complain. They yell at Moses rather than yelling at God. Numbers 14, 3 and 4 to Moses and Aaron. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. We would rather die slaves than live with this disappointment. It would be better to die in the desert. Let's just go back to Egypt. This whole thing was a failure. God has set his people free. He's brought him to the land they promised. And they decide in this moment, they would rather be slaves in Egypt before God showed up on the scene. On one level, this is complaining. You know, fairly obnoxious complaining. But it's actually deeper. By proposing to actually return to Egypt, they are essentially in this moment rejecting God's entire plan of redemption. From Exodus 1 to the mission of the spies, there's but one plot line. How God was bringing his people out of slavery to be with them in the land that he promised to their forefather, Abraham. Now within sight of this goal, they give up. They cast aside God's plan and start crafting their own. Now at this point, Moses and Aaron realize this is not good. Verse 5, what do they do? They just fall on their faces. Like, oh no, this is bad. Caleb and Joshua, they try and convince the people otherwise. This is their best effort in 14, 8 through 9. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Right? Anything else. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us, right? The spies said earlier, you know, the, the land devours its inhabitants. It's like, no, they'll be bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Israel, trust in God. He promised to bring you to this land. He's with us. Don't give up. And yet, they do. They abandon God's word to them, his promise to bring them to a land of their own. They believe the evil report of the spies and the explorers. They buy into the lies that they tell. And then as a result of that, they are entombed in fear. And as a consequence, even though 
they are literally on the cusp of receiving this great gift that God is going to give them, they turn away. As the chapter unfolds, we learn that God gives the people of Israel what they want. You wanna, you don't want to go in the promised land? You don't want to have to deal with these fortified cities? Okay. This entire generation of adults will die in the desert. None of them will set foot in the promised land. The only people who will enter are the children who had no part in this decision and Caleb and Joshua, both of whom trusted in God's word. They even tried to get the people to go in. Let's trust God. If we delight in him, right, he'll be with us. On the cusp of the promised land, Numbers 14 just ends in tragedy. The question is, right, how does this story, the story of so much hope that leads to just tragedy, how does this relate to us? How does this speak into our lives as a people? I thought and I prayed about it a fair amount this week, and my sense is that the central question of this text that I think relates to us is whether we believe God's word to us. And Numbers 13 and 14, I think, is in part given to us as a warning. This generation of people, God was leading, he was giving them this good gift, but rather than believing his word to them, they turned to go their own way. And I guess as we wrestle with this text this morning, I wonder whether we're a people who believe God's word to us. I wonder if we really take seriously the impact, the consequence, when we don't. Right in our culture, we tend to say things like, you do you. Do what makes sense to you. Assuming that there is no consequence for us just doing our own thing. The Israelites' lack of belief, their lack of trust is not neutral, no matter how much we want it to be. They not only do not get the land that is promised them, this wonderful gift, but instead of that, they die in the wilderness, in the desert. And I think this hits us in a few different ways. I think one way is that, like, the primary word that God speaks to us is through the scriptures, right? right? Throughout history, God has given this book, these scriptures, so that we know how he speaks. We know what he does. We know what he has to say. But we live in a culture that is obsessed and focused on personal belief. Right? If that conviction makes you happy, rock it. Do it. It's all good. I mean, how many turns have I heard, it's all good? And while certainly God does care about our desires, our happiness, that is not the primary message of the text, of the story, of God's word to us. 
right? The good news of the gospel isn't that we're set free to do whatever we want. You want to go to Egypt? Go to Egypt. You want to go to the promised land? Go to the promised land. I made them all, right? Rather, the good news of the gospel is that God created all things. He created you, he created me, he created all of humanity. And that humans, rather than saying yes to Jesus, yes to his gift, yes to his promise, we have decided to go our own way. And as a result, we become trapped in sin, in behaviors, in attitudes, in ways of being that separate us from God. And the good news of the gospel is that God sends his son to save us. That Jesus died on a cross, right, to set you and me free from the power of sin, which binds us, traps us, humiliates us. Right, how we respond to Jesus' death and resurrection, whether we trust him, whether we believe him, has way bigger consequences than whether the Israelites entered the promised land. According to the scriptures, the only thing standing between you and me and heaven, right, eternity with God and his kingdom, and hell, right, eternity separated from God. Separated from all the best things in life, joy, goodness, beauty, is trust in God's word. Right? Jesus is the word of God made flesh. Trusting that he died on our behalf to reconcile us to the Father and welcome in his, in us into his kingdom. Now, I realize these sort of theological points, this narrative, can be a little tricky to understand. I get that. It's not always easy to go from the scriptures and sort of apply it into everyday life. But that doesn't make it any less true. And it doesn't make the consequence of not believing those words any less real. The scriptures are so clear. If we do not surrender our life to the lordship of Jesus, to his kingdom, we will not enter his presence after we die. Right, just as the Israelites did in the land of the promised land. Right, just because God offers a gift, he doesn't force us to receive it. Just because he declares the good news, we don't have to believe it. We don't have to trust it. And these are some of the truths declared in the scriptures. What do we do with that? What is our response to that? Right, we live in a world where there's all kinds of voices telling us, this is true, this is true, live this way, do it this way. Who is the anchoring voice that we trust in? I think this is true if this is your first day in church or if you've been going to church 50 years. We're all needing to pay attention to what, are, what word are we putting our faith, our trust, our hope in. And these truths are declared in the scriptures. These are God's word to us. Do we believe them? And while I would say these are God's primary word to us, God also does speak promises to us individually. 
In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul promises Paul personally. He says this, My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Hey, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Do you believe it, Paul? Paul's risking his life through all the Mediterranean trying to share the good news of the gospel. He's bought in. He's going for it. And God promises in the midst of that, he speaks a word to him. My grace is sufficient for Paul, for you, Paul. Do you believe it? Grandpa Paul has a choice. Is he going to live out of this reality that it really all comes down to him and his efforts? Or is he going to trust that God's grace is sufficient for him? That Paul doesn't always need to be strong. Sometimes he can be weak. Right? That is God's word, his promise to Paul. And the question is, will Paul believe it? What words has God spoken to you? Personally, maybe there's a scripture, you know, in the 10 days or 10 years or, I don't know, five decades you've been following Jesus. Do you have a few times where you felt like God promised you something? He said something to you. Do you hold on to that? Or was that just something he said five years ago that you've totally forgotten about? Like the Israelites standing on the threshold of the promised land. Oh yeah, God did say something about land a while back. I can't remember. In the scriptures, right, we also learn the human life is not just composed of the material world, but there's actually a spiritual battle going on over our minds and our hearts, right? There's an actual enemy in this world who wants nothing more than to undermine your faith, your friendships, your parenting, your marriage, who wants to turn you into a bitter, angry, depressed, anxious addict. One of the ways he does this is by telling lies. John, Jesus in John 8, 8 says that Satan is the father of lies. Sometimes I wonder whether we are paying more attention to the whispered lies of Satan than the promises of God the Father. Numbers 13 and 14, the people of God end up believing an evil report of the spies, right? And as a result, they die in the wilderness. They believe the lies, they become entombed in fear. It leads to death. And I guess I just wonder this morning, among us, what are the lies we are believing that lead to death? Because Jesus is super clear. In the Gospels, he says that he has come to bring life. He's come to bring abundant life, right? John 10, 10. Jesus says, I have come to bring life and life to the full. And yet, I think if some of us look at our lives today, we think, well, I'm not sure I see that abundant life. I see a gap here between the life I'm experiencing and the abundant life I'm promised. And one of my wonderings today, as I reflect on this story and these texts, is I wonder if one of the reasons for the gap between the abundant life we're promised and our reality is that we have bought into lies that keep us shackled into the ground.
Richard Beck, in this book called Reviving Old Scratch, he says the satanic is everything which tempts us away from taking up our cross and following Jesus. Paul, writing to his apprentice Timothy, warns that there are deceitful spirits at work in the world. Pay attention to them, Timothy. You're going to be leading people into Jesus' presence. Pay attention to not just the Holy Spirit, but the other spirits at work that are there to undermine all that you do. Are we paying attention to the spirits that are trying to deceive us? Are we paying attention to the reports in our world that are evil reports that are out there to undermine our faith, undermine our marriages, undermine our friendships, undermine our parenting, undermine our family relationships, stealing the abundant life that Jesus promises to us? On the ground. You know, before we enter worship, I think there's three questions I would like us to consider in the week. My hope is, as a people, right, we have patterns in our, in our week where we withdraw from the everyday, the busy, the crazy, and we find these little nooks in our day when we're with Jesus. Maybe you're reading the scriptures, you're praying. My hope is all of us have those spaces. And when you're in that space this week, I have three questions maybe you can talk with Jesus about. First is this, what biblical truths are you most likely, most tempted to discount? Now you might be wondering, well, what biblical truths should I be considering? I was thinking about this. You know, there's a, uh, there's a prayer, a confession, a creed. It's been passed through the church for, I don't know exactly when it came up, at least 1,500 years maybe 2,000, called the Apostles' Creed. Maybe just pull it up during one of these prayer times. Read the Apostles' Creed and say, all right, God, which of these core essential beliefs in our faith am I tempted to disregard? Just go through. And maybe you go through them and you're like, no, I'm solid on these. But maybe one pops up. You're like, huh, I don't know what I think about that. Find someone to talk with. Send me an email. I would love to be a part of that conversation. Very aware, some of these biblical truths are not always easier to wrap our hands head around. I'm in process. I'm still trying to figure out to ask Aaron every other day for help, you know. Second question I would encourage you to look at is, what personal promises has God made to you that you are most likely to forget or have already forgotten? If you follow Jesus a while, you start to accumulate some of these promises. Which ones anchor you that you've forgotten this week? That have kind of been backseated to all the other voices in your life. And then three, what lies are you tempted to believe? Now one way to, I think, do this, diagnose it, is look at those like in your life, in your daily life, where are the like pockets of death? Like I just feel shriveled and shrunk. I feel beat up in this moment. I hate being here. I don't like how I'm talking to myself or thinking about myself or interacting with others. 
Pay attention to those moments of death. What lie are you believing in that moment? It might give you a sense of, oh, this is the voice I'm listening to. Saying I'm stupid. Saying I'm ugly. Saying I'm worthless. Saying I have no part being a part of this. Saying if I take, if I take a risk, I'm going to be slammed to the ground like I was last time. We all have these lies that we are tempted to believe in. And what you'll notice is they also tend to coincide with patterns of behavior that are not life-giving in your life, in your relationships, in your work. You buy into these lies and these lies root in you. And then they pull you and they tempt you and you start to see, oh, this is the lesson that I should have learned 10 years ago but I haven't and I've just walked the same road again and again. Why am I here again? Because you're buying into the same lie again. I want to invite the worship team up. I should invite you, you know, as we sit in worship, one of the goals of worship is to orient all of who we are as human creatures in the presence of Jesus. And one of the ways we do that is we sing songs because songs have an ability to bypass all of our thinking that we like to do and get us into some heart spaces. I want to invite you to allow God into some of those heart spaces because this is the thing. That is where our beliefs and our trust spring from. That is also where the lies are trying to penetrate. Let's allow the Spirit of God to heal us, to restore us, to be with us in those places where our faith and our trust spring from. God, we ask in this moment (laughs) that you would reveal yourself to us. That in a world where we can be tempted to think, maybe, maybe you've taken a break from the throne. No, you're there. You're not only there, you are with us right now. In these pews, in these chairs, in all the nooks and crannies of our life, whether we're on a threshold, we're in a transition, we're feeling a little depressed or beat up, God, you are there. Whether we're on the mountaintop or in the base of the valley, in the shadow of death, God. You are there. Your spirit is with us. God, bring us to a place of trust. We do not want to be like the Israelites turning back from the gift that you have offered. God, we want to be a people who enjoy those gifts, that trust you, that walk into them and experience your provision. God, break the power of the lies that shackle us that we might be a people who discern the spirits. That we might be a people that are set free to experience your abundant life, your provision, your gift, the full spectrum of your redemption. That we would not be just set free from sin, but free to live as you live, Jesus. church, let's stand. Let's sing songs 
to the God who loves us, who wants to bring us life. Thank you.